When you think of prisons, do you think of big business? It comes as a surprise to many people that prisons, and specifically private prisons, are a multi-billion dollar money-making machine. If this gives you pause, you're not alone. In this season, we will tell the story of how prisons became profitable in the first place and the ethical implications that come with using prisons and those incarcerated within them to make money. This is Illegal Tender Season 8. I'm Adriana Belmonte. So what is a private prison, and how have they evolved over the years? We decided to answer that question for ourselves in this podcast. Throughout our series of interviews, however, we learned that private prisons are just one component of mass incarceration and the profiteering that takes place within it. In these episodes, you will get an understanding of the for-profit prison industry, but you'll also see how prisons benefit off of those incarcerated within them in numerous other ways. We'll talk to a man who spent 13 years in prison and now works as a criminal justice advocate. We'll talk to a young man who learned how hard it is to be free of the system. We'll also talk to some experts who work closely within criminal justice reform and are actively trying to bring change. In our first episode, we're going to mainly focus on private prisons, but we encourage you to keep listening and learn as we do that it goes much deeper than that. I decided that the best place to start was the American Civil Liberties Union, which most people know as the ACLU. Brandon Buskey, Deputy Director of Smart Justice Litigation, was happy to talk on the subject. How would you define the for-profit prison industry? The for-profit prison industry is a multi-billion dollar corporate effort to run private prisons, not only in the United States, but throughout the world. And it depends for its survival on our dependence on mass incarceration. So I'm curious, when did these prisons start becoming privatized? Because, I mean, for me, I'm I'm about 25 years old. I just kind of remember uh, eventually it was becoming more and more common, but I can't remember a specific point in time where it became a trend. So most sources credit the start of the private prison industry to the 1980s. In 1983, the Corporate Corrections of America, or CCA, was formed in Houston, Texas. That company is now uh, operating under the moniker Core Civic in an effort to rebrand itself. But very quickly after the formation of private prisons in the 1980s, we also saw the dramatic expansion of the war on drugs, mandatory minimums. And so the private prison industry has essentially grown up with the trend in mass incarceration in our country over the past uh, several generations. The war on drugs led to skyrocketing rates of incarceration. According to Drug Policy Alliance, the number of people behind bars for nonviolent drug law offenses increased from 50,000 in 1980 to over 400,000 by 1997. That's a 700% increase. I also spoke with Amy Fettig, the executive director of the Sentencing Project, which is an organization that advocates for reforming sentencing practices, focusing on the overuse of extreme sentencing and proposing alternatives to incarceration. The the number of private prisons hold about 9% of the incarcerated population. So it's relatively small. Where we see private prison corporations really have a dominating impact is in immigration detention. 
And the reason for that is when private prison corporations first came online in the 90s, everyone thought that they would save money. But it turns out the only way that private prisons save money is to underpay their staff and to not train people very well, and also to deny basic services and programming. So that's a terrible prison. That's an unsafe prison. And in the 90s, there were many high-profile problems, people escaping, people dying. And so many states pulled their contracts with private prison corporations. And then we had 9-11 and the ramp-up of detaining immigration detainees. And that industry grew, and the private prison corporations jumped into it. The U.S. has the most private prisons in the world. According to the Sentencing Project, there were over 128,000 people incarcerated in private prisons in 2016, which accounted for roughly 8.5% of the prison population. And more than 26,000 people, 73% of those in immigration detention, were held in privately run facilities in 2017. So now they very much dominate immigration detention which looks the same as prisons and jails. It is the same as prisons and jails. It might be called civil detention, but trust me, having been in these institutions, they are exactly the same in prisons and jails, and usually they're the same institution. And so we see the same thing happening, where monetizing being basic incarceration and detention of black and brown people predominantly, and the same sorts of industries, the same sorts of telephone companies that come in and charge astronomical rates so that people don't have enough money to contact their family, or the families themselves are taxed at an enormous rate to even contact briefly their loved ones inside. We'll talk more about the telecom industry and how they profit within prisons in a later episode. But for now, we want our listeners to get an understanding of how spread out private prisons are across the country. Is there a specific part of the U.S. where there is a lot of for-profit prisons or are they spread out, you know, all across, you know, from coast to coast? That's a great question. There's a lot of variability in the extent to which you see private prisons across the country. The biggest consumer of private prisons by far is the federal government. Uh, About 18 percent, almost 20 percent of people who are detained by the federal government find themselves in private prisons. And that number grows to 75% for those held in immigration detention by the federal government. In the States, the story is very different. In the States, only about 7% of people held by local jails and prisons are in private facilities. And there you see a lot more variability where states like Texas, Florida, Mississippi rely very heavily on private prisons, but then you have 19 states across the country that don't have private prisons at all. So so the the extent to which states rely on private prisons is very variable, but the federal government by far is the major consumer. So you mentioned states like Texas, Florida. Why those states in particular? What what is it that makes those states so reliant on these uh, prisons? These are often states that have attempted to address budget concerns by increasing privatization. It's a common model that we've seen throughout criminal justice reform, where the pitch by often conservative lawmakers is to save money and operate the system more efficiently. And that is a recipe for inviting private prisons to come in with a 
appeal that they can run the prisons for uh, far less money uh, and save the state thereby a number of millions of dollars in doing so. So how are private prisons legally able to operate? It all comes down to, you guessed it, money. Federal prisons can be costly. The average annual cost of incarceration for federal inmates was $36,299.25 in 2017, which comes out to $99.45 per day, a 4.6% increase from 2016. The business plan of a for-profit prison is very simple. The prison will approach a state or locality and say, we will take over the operation of a prison in exchange for you keeping the prison at certain levels of occupancy. And in the course of doing that, the, the private prison, the private company then takes over all operations from the state. And, and the appeal there is, you know, instead of the state having to spend money on its own corrections officers, on its own medical care, the private prison now will take all that over. And in using these occupancy rates, what the prison is doing is saying, you have to still pay us in overhead for the number of people who are housed here. But in the course of that, you'll still see savings because we can operate the prison more efficiently. And that's generally how this works. And, and often the private prison to incentivize the state to sign the contract will offer a kickback to the state and say, if you extend the contract by five years or 10 years, we will pay you say, $10 million, $30 million uh, for the privilege of signing that contract, knowing that the private prison stands to gain tens of to hundreds of millions of dollars through operating the prison for the state. We saw that in the 90s when the criminal laws were changed to become harsher and harsher so that more and more people became incarcerated. That's how we got mass incarceration. The criminal laws were changed, and a lot of these criminal laws were changed with the political support of individuals who supported the private prison corporations because they saw a business opportunity. They saw the incarceration, the denial of freedom of our fellow Americans, of people in our community, as a business opportunity. And so they supported the expansion of those laws, the mandatory minimums that, that meant you, you would get harsher and harsher sentences no matter what circumstances uh, led you to commit a crime. It took the discretion away from judges so that people were ending up in, in, in prison for reasons that normally they never would have done. We passed things like three strikes laws that meant you might have had previous convictions, but on your third conviction, no matter what it was, you got a life sentence. So we had people getting life sentences for stealing videotapes which only filled our prisons with low-level folks who didn't need to be incarcerated. Most often what they needed was housing and mental health treatment and drug treatment. It also took, yeah, what we saw with the war on drugs is that resources that could have gone into community treatment, which is far more effective and far cheaper, were diverted into building prisons and warehousing more and more people. And private prison corporations benefited from that as did all the collateral industries that make money off of our collateral state, from the phone companies to the companies that sell commissary. I gotta tell you, 
uh, a bag of chips in prison, which is highly prized because the food is so terrible and nobody has access, a bag of chips is going to cost you a lot of money. Uh, and somebody makes money off of that. Uh, it, it's a corporation. Uh, we also saw, again, the privatization of medical care. That didn't used to be an issue in this country. The state used to run medical care in prisons and jails, uh, and, and counties did as well. But now it's a privatized business that makes money off of the fact that we have a mass incarceration system that doesn't treat people in the community, that doesn't provide a social safety net in the community. Instead, it builds prison walls around people who would be better served nine times out of 10 by staying in the community, staying with their families and having their needs served there. I mean, I think we have to ask ourselves, why don't we have mental health care in the community? Why are we using prisons and jails to be the largest mental health hospitals in the country? Uh, those are not systems that are designed to treat people. They're designed to control. Private prisons have become increasingly problematic. If you've seen Orange is the New Black, you might know what I'm talking about. In a later season of the show, the prison is taken over by a private company, making it a for-profit prison. Among the numerous issues that come up along the way is the fact that improperly trained guards are hired, resulting in the death of a beloved character. I talked with Lauren Brooke Eisen, who directs the justice program at NYU School of Law's Brennan Center for Justice about some of these issues. The industry has been criticized truly for as long as it's existed. And the reason for that is because some argue private prisons create perverse incentives that drive overcrowding by cutting costs and reducing the quality of life for the incarcerated individuals in those facilities, or that private prisons earn more revenue when incarcerated individuals serve longer sentences, encouraging private prison officials to hand out more disciplinary infractions. Others take issue with this concept of a corporation profiting off of our predilection for incarceration, um, truly rewarded for the number of incarcerated people they can house instead of rewarding these companies for successfully reintegrating incarcerated individuals back into society. And for many decades, some legal scholars and policymakers have contended that there are certain state functions that simply can't be delegated. And one of those is punishment. And the, these issues and these questions really signify, illustrate the, the, let me, I'm going to back up here. These criticisms of the industry really illustrate how uncomfortable the nation has been um, with the delegating of punishment to corporations. And as many of your listeners may be aware, the industry has a foothold not only in local jails and state prisons and federal prisons, but a significant foothold in immigration detention. And in fact, about 70% of immigration detention beds are in the hands of the private industry at this point. And again, it all goes back to money. In order for these companies to make money, they are incentivized to cut costs and find efficiencies. 
And the industry looks for efficiencies that government officials who are tremendously hamstrung by stringent procurement laws and union contracts can't take advantage of. And in order to make a profit, um, the government needs to ensure that the contract price is lower than what the state would pay for operating the facility itself. Um, But this puts the private prison operators in a bit of a catch-22 because to save money, the private corporations need to run their prisons at a lower cost while also ensuring that the facility complies with the contract, state and federal regulations. And the bulk of prison costs stem from labor. About 65 to 70% of operational costs are for staff salaries, benefits, and staff overtime. So private companies, these private uh, prison corporations tend to rely on non-union staff. There are some exceptions. There are some companies that hire union staff, but for the most part, the private prison industry tends to rely on non-union staff. And this allows for cheaper labor because they may not be paying pensions. They don't have collective bargaining issues. So private correction, Officers, correctional officers are generally not members of a union. And the corporations will say it's been very difficult to get true data to to shed light on whether this really is true. But the corporations will say that they work under efficiencies of scale. So if they order uniforms, if they order items for their prisons if they contract with commissary companies that they are able to negotiate better rates because they can negotiate these rates across many of their prisons. And an inquiry that a lot of researchers have been looking into um, and researching and studying for decades is do these institutions actually save the government money? And that's a really important question to answer because that is one of the reasons why governments started to contract with the private prison industry in the mid 80s. And it's very difficult to compare public and private prisons. There are studies comparing cost savings and quality of public versus private prisons, but the research is plagued by uncertainty. And one of the most common pro-privatization arguments is that private prisons improve efficiency, cost fewer tax dollars, but it's difficult to vet whether that claim is actually true. And the way costs are calculated on a public budgeting document and for a private company very widely and are not easily comparable. The war on drugs only exacerbated the problem. The entrance of the private prison industry coincides with a time in our country when prisons in more than half the states were filled to the brim and many of them were under federal court order to reduce their prison populations. In fact, by the mid-80s, there, were, there was at least one prison in more than half of the states that were under a court order to improve conditions that violated the U.S. Constitution. There were often caps set on how many incarcerated people could be housed in certain prisons. And some states were releasing incarcerated people early to relieve overcrowding. 
So this is the mid 80s and state after state faced this massive crisis to reduce its prison population or build additional expensive facilities. And this was the heyday of tough on crime. Any discussion of alternatives to incarceration meant that one wasn't going to win re-election, whether you were running for DA or city council. And by the mid 80s, all of these states, a great many states, really faced these significant budget shortfalls and correctional agencies were trying to comply with court orders to reduce overcrowding. And a group of astute businessmen got together and they looked at the projections of where the prison populations in the United States were going in the future. And they realized there was an opportunity for this new growth industry. And a lot of people ask the question, did private prisons cause mass incarceration? And the answer is no. Our policies caused mass incarceration. Our tough on crime policies, our three strikes policies, our mandatory minimums, federal funding that was sent to states to combat crime. These are all part of why, sorry, let me back up. It was our policies that created mass incarceration. Some of it, some of these policies included laws such as mandatory minimums, three strikes policies. Some of the, sorry, I'm trying, I'm trying to mix a, a lot of different ideas off the record. In terms of why our prison populations increased so greatly, the reason is because of our policies. Um, these are state and federal policies that increased lengths of stay, policies that required mandatory minimum stays, policies such as three strikes laws. And additionally, federal funding played a role in how we dealt with crime in this country. So instead of funding programming, funding early intervention, instead of investing in communities that had been historically disenfranchised, the federal government um, for decades sent money to states to create drug task forces to over-police Black and Latino communities. And all of this resulted in mass incarceration. But when we talk about the private prison industry, their growth is inexorably intertwined with the growth of mass incarceration. So at the end of the day, we would have mass incarceration with or without the private prison industry. But something that's really important to note is that the industry does make it harder to dismantle mass incarceration. In our next episode, you'll hear about how it's not just for-profit prisons that are making money off of those incarcerated. Illegal Tender is made by Yahoo Finance at our studios and homes in New York City. This episode was written and hosted by me, Adriana Belmonte. Illegal Tender was created, edited, and produced by Alex Sugg. 
Thank you to Brandon Buskey, Amy Fettig, and Lauren Brooke-Eisen for sharing your knowledge with us. If you enjoyed this podcast, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review it for the show. Until next time, thank you for listening to Illegal Tender. Thank you.